Okay, scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God, the word of the Lord. Thanks. We're completing today a study, uh, brief, in the book of Genesis that has been focused on Abraham. When I initially started the study, I intended I was going to go through the whole book of Genesis, but I feel like God wants us to move on, and so I am going to leave it here today. We really focused on Abraham as our model of faith. And so uh, today we read from the book of Hebrews, but about Abraham, and I want to finish up with what I think is one of the Bible's big takeaways from us as to what we do and how we live in this faith realm that Abraham demonstrated for us. There's, uh, there's many ways I know my wife knows that I'm the, the perfect man for her and she likes everything about me, and then there's a couple of ways she wishes I was different. One of the ways I know over our almost 30 years that my wife wishes uh, that I were different was she, she wishes I were the kind of guy that loved to go tent camping. She, she, I think it's somewhat uh, unrealistic, but she has this idea that tent camping sort of is this sort of the birds are twittering and there's communal life and you're out in nature. And, you know, I, I affirm all those things. I do. And I, every part of tent camping appeals to me except the sleeping in the tent part. That part doesn't appeal to me, uh, and there's there's a number of reasons why. Again, I, I, um, you know, the people that love that kind of thing are, um, you know, I don't I don't hold it against you or anything, but it's to me the reality is is awkward of that because first place I don't sleep when I go to tents. Now again, I know some of you do, and that's uh, you you're miraculous, but I don't sleep. Well, and nothing is as it should be when I'm in a, in a tent. Like when I wake up in the morning, I know exactly where everything is. I know where to look to see what time it is. You know, I know where my clock is. When I wake up, I have no idea. You know, when I, I know exactly the path on how to get to the facilities. I know when I'm in a tent, I have no, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I wake up. It's this awkward that it, it, it's not 
not me. It doesn't fit. It's not right. And so I've sort of stood in her way of this, of this dream. And maybe one day God will change me and I'll be, you know, this miraculously changed man. But um, what we, one thing we learn that I think is fascinating about Abraham, and he was a tenth guy. And what I mean by this is the Bible points out something to us. Do you know how long it was? The, the story um, that uh, where, where we leave Abraham off in Genesis, the story of that, his story really ends around chapter 23. From there we pick up Isaac's story and then Jacob's story and Joseph's story for the last of Genesis. When we really come down from Abraham in, in chapter 23, I'll invite you if you have your Bible open to Genesis 23. And we learn that Sarah has died, that she was 127, and Abraham wanted to buy a plot of land in the promised land to bury his wife. And in verse 3 of Genesis 23, Abraham, it says, Abraham rose up from before his dead, and said to the Hittites, he was in country controlled by this tribe called the Hittites. And he says this, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, in one sense, that seems like just a very, he's just buying a burial plot, right? Lots of us do that with our life. It just seems very like, okay, he's buying a burial plot. No, no, there is a lot more going on than this. First, can I tell you something? He was promised by God this land. This was, this was part, he was in the promised land. He was, now, he didn't control it yet. It wouldn't be until Joshua comes hundreds of years later that the land would be under control, but he had been promised by God that this was his land and his descendants, though he himself wouldn't own it, that it would be God's promised land. And yet, here he is, and what does he consider himself? Not, hey, this is Abe land. He didn't, he says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. The word their ger that is used in Hebrew is a word that speaks of being like a, an, an exile, a visitor, someone who doesn't live in that land. And this point is picked up in Hebrews and, and throughout the Bible is that Abraham didn't consider, even though he'd been promised by God this land, that this was his home. Hebrews points out he lived in a tent. Not everyone in the promised land lived in tents. It wasn't like that was the only way you could live. But he was a tent dweller. What Bud read this morning included a phrase that you can just pass right over. That it says in verse eight, 9 of Hebrews 11, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise. So, he had lived in the land for 62 years. How many of y'all have lived in one place for 62 years? Okay? Yeah. We don't live, in our, in our culture, in our society, I'll tell you something, if I lived in the same place for 62 years, that's be where I'd be from. I'm, I, I sort of consider myself a Fairfax County guy because I grew up there. I was born there and lived there until I was 
you know, 24, 25. That's half the time. 62 years, and he thinks, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gare. I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. There's several words that are used there, but he never considers this his home. It's kind of a little bit strange to me after 62 years that he considers that. So the question is why? What's the significance of that? Second part I want to tell you about what we just read in him asking to buy the burial plot is this. He'd been promised that land from God earlier on in chapter 14 where he meets this mysterious king Melchizedek. King of Sodom offers him property and booty from war that Abraham says, I'm not taking anything, even though he could have at that point, claimed part of the land as his own through conquering it militarily, he said, I'm not taking the land. Because then it won't come from God. You could eventually say, well, I made Abraham owner of this land. In the previous chapter, he negotiates water rights around a well for his flocks. That's the first time that he ever has any interest in ownership in the land. But here... He buys land, and he pays a good price for it. He doesn't barter or haggle over it. It's, it's a fair and good price. This is the first place where he owns the promised land. He sets a stake down. Now, there's more going on in that that we don't have time to get into in terms of the meaning of the burial plot and that place that he bought. But I want you to know, at this point, he sets a stake in the ground. Now this to me, God, this is, I'll just say, is a personal thing because I've, I've often, I've, I've been asking the Lord, so Lord, do we set a stake in the ground in Haymarket? How do we, how do I contextualize this for my life and my world? And I don't, I feel like a foreigner in this land. I feel like a foreigner in this culture. I, and yet I feel like God said, you know, this, this may be a time where we set a stake down. There's a time where you set a stake down in the middle and say, this is the land God has promised me. We do it spiritually, we do it practically. So, if he's a foreigner in this land, what's his identity? If I asked you, just think of it, if I said, so, where are you from? Who are you? Now, I would say, well, I'm a Northern Virginia guy. I was, yeah, I lived away for 15 years, but I was born in Fairfax, and Nancy and I have now been back for 15 years, and I've, I've, I lived in this area longer than anywhere else, and that would be my identity. Okay? So Abraham says, I'm not from here, when he talks to the Hittites and buys the land. He says, I'm a, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. So where are you from? Could he say, well, I'm, I'm from up north, I'm from Haran, that's where my family's from? Nope. Let's see, what, let's see, Hebrews addresses this very specifically, going back to Hebrews 11. He says, I'm not from here. Hebrews 11, verse 15. I'll start with 14 to get a running start. For people, well, actually 13 will give us a better context. 13. These all, Hebrews 11, 13. Those who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but seeing them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Just like Abraham. See, this is we're talking about Abraham. For people who speak that way make it clear they're seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had opportunity to return. We know Abraham came from a place of idol worship and a place where the ways of God weren't acknowledged. And so he didn't say, well, I'm from there. And he didn't say, well, I'm from here. This is my home. So where does Abraham say home is? It's a place he's going. Get this. Get this. It's a place he's going that he's never been before. That's his home. Abraham's home and identity was not where he came from or where he was, but where he was headed. When I go to places I've never been before, it doesn't take me long to figure I'm not from there, having done short-term missions in other places. The values are different. The culture is different. When I go to uh, Central America, South America, Jamaica, other places like that, the first thing I realize is our clocks are set to different times, right? Anybody who's gone and says, yeah, we'll be there in 15 minutes, right? It doesn't take you long in, in another culture, even in this culture sometimes, to figure it's an hour. And 15 minutes means an hour and 15 minutes, right? You learn a new time schedule. When they say come for dinner... In our culture, that usually means like an hour, you know, two hours, whatever. Come to dinner, it's the rest of your night and tomorrow maybe. Come to church. I've been to church in Central America. Get ready, man. It's like six hours, right? Which is great. It's just different. What I realize is I'm not from there. I don't acknowledge it. I don't understand it. I have to begin to live in it. It's like living in a tent. Nothing's where I want it to be. The air mattress leaks, and it just isn't the way I think it should be. Guys, we should not feel at home here. If you feel so comfortable and so at home with the values of our culture, something is wrong as a christian there should be a disconnect between what we see around us and people should think you're a little strange and i don't mean because of your personality people should think that family is a little different and you know what they may not know whether they like it or not and that's okay. We told our children, I told you this before, when our children would say, well, why can't we do this? I'd say, because you're McGowan's. Which is another way of saying, because we're Christians, we just don't do that. Why? Because we're McGowan's. That's not our identity. And it's not because we're churched. It's because of where we're going because you can't take with you in the presence of the Lord that which dishonors him now. And so it shouldn't be comfortable for us to do that. And Abraham, as a model of faith, lived that way. And he lived that the people around him didn't know what to make of him. When he bought the land from the Hittites, he said, I'm a stranger, a foreigner, a sojourner, like a nobody among you. And they said, you're a prince of God. We want to give you this land. And he said, you don't understand. I'm not from here. I'm buying it from you at full price. You want to be Hittites buddy buddies with me? 
and give me something and then we'll be in relationship. And he said, I can't be in that kind of relationship because I'm not from here. And I'm not from there where I came from. I'm from where I'm going. And until we get that we're from where we're going, then we can live a new way because the values are not 1950s values we're supposed to live in. We all think, oh, well, gosh, today it's not like it was 50 years ago. You know what they were saying in the 1950s? It's not like it was in the 1910s. You know what they're saying in 1910? Man, the Victorian era, that's where we were godly. You know what they're saying in the Victorian era? We are slackers compared to the first Great Awakening. You know what they're saying in the Great Awakening? Man, we are the biggest sinners in the world. And we all say, why don't we live in the first century? Acts 2, that's where it really was happening. Can I tell you, we've been sinners from day one until now. And it's where we're going that matters. There isn't a golden age. It's coming a new heaven and a new earth. And we got to live with that in mind now. And Abraham is our model of that. All right. There are a thousand ways we live different. And I could pick on, I mean, we could talk about the way we think and the way we talk and the way we live. I'm just going to let, I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself on two passages and then we're done. First Peter some of you have been studying First Peter, I think. Thirty great women and a few, probably a few others of you too. But this speaks greatly about what it means. Peter begins his book by saying, to the elect exiles. You know what that word is? We translate it ger. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek word is different, but when the Septuagint translated it, don't worry what that means, but it's the same word. The elect exiles, the ones I've chosen who don't live in this earth, right? So it's written, this whole book is written to exiles, to resident aliens. You live here, you're not a tourist. You're building a home here, but you're building a home that's going to look like what you're going to, not like what you came from, or it should. So he says in verse, let's go to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, writing to these exiles. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, there's that word again, and exiles, first thing he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We live for, in a culture that lives for the passions of the flesh. If we love this world, First John says, you'll love the things of the world. John says, don't love the world. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eye, don't love those things. He says, that's where you came from. Where we're going to, right, is where that passions God's put within us can be rightly worked out in our lives because they're done in a godly way. We live in a culture that says anything goes. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. We live in a day where Christians are seen in some circles as evil because of what we believe and affirm as scriptural truth. We need to live in a way that negates that, that says, you may find what I believe offensive, but the spirit within me and where I'm going is so attractive that you have to look twice. 
And that's why there's this tension of people looking and they say, I find you offensive in what you believe. And yet something about the whiff of God's spirit makes you attractive. How can you be both offensive and attractive at the same time? That happens because in the culture and where we're going now, we give off the scent of life in a culture of death. And no one likes to smell life around death because when you get used to death, that's the smell you're used to. But the smell of life is where we're going. Other smells are other things. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers, Peter believed and knew that the end of all things was coming. Whether it was coming for him at the end of his life or whether the Lord returned, he didn't know. But he was preparing these exiles to live differently now in light of what was to come. So he says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded Sobriety is an interesting thing. We live in an alcohol-fueled culture. Alcohol in and of itself isn't wrong, but we live in a culture that says alcohol consumption in excess is, is simply a rite of passage. It's a right to do. And what happens is our, when, when you uh, are intoxicated, your perception of reality changes, doesn't it? Your decision-making changes. And that's the way it is with the world. When we get filled with the world, our decision-making changes and our perception of reality changes. And Peter says to be sober, in the sense of sober-minded, says we've got to let ourselves be controlled not by the spirits, but by the Spirit. The second thing he says in verse 8 is he says, uh, this is again in 1 Peter chapter 4, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Another way resident aliens live is that they don't hold people's sins against them. To cover sin is not a cover-up of sin. Sometimes people say, well, why should we cover sins? Shouldn't they be exposed? There's only two ways the Bible says to handle when you're aware of sin out there. I'll I'll talk about it in someone else's life right now when you're aware of it. There's two ways to deal with it. Only two. To lovingly overlook that sin or to lovingly address that sin. The only two ways. You know what our culture does is we magnify sin. When we see a public figure or anybody else fall, our culture revels, right? and putting up their failure in front of them as long as is possible. Not only does it sell news time, but we can mock people who we disagree with, maybe in the political spectrum, in other ways we can, we can ridicule. Resident aliens live in a way that when, when we sin against one another, is that if we need, it needs to be addressed, we lovingly address it. And other than that, we cover the way... Jesus covered our sin by how? By forgiving it and by moving on and not continually bringing it up. More marriages, I think, are lost or ruined by people who can't let go and have sin be covered. But remember in 19, 
82 when you wouldn't go on that vacation with me, right? Are we covering the sin or are we just reveling and chewing it up and spitting it out again in someone's face? Resident aliens live for what's coming where Jesus is not going to remind you of all your failures. When you get to heaven and you say, Lord, I'm sorry for that quiet time I didn't have. I'm sorry for that. He's going to say, what? I don't, I don't remember that. I remember how much I loved you that day when you messed up. I know you did it, but I don't remember. My memory must be going bad. It's not his memory. It's that he lives forever in the new earth and the new heavens. Number three, verse nine, Second Peter four. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're in, I'm sorry, First Peter. Sorry, First Peter 4. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Cheerfully open up our, let's cheerfully open up our homes to one another. This is an incredibly practical piece of advice. And can I tell you this is really alien in, in our culture? I know this is not true, and I wouldn't may, maybe speak this in a Middle Eastern culture or someplace where homes were open regularly, but we live isolated I grew up here. I know how isolating it is. And that, you know, we all lament sometimes. We don't know the names of our neighbors or whatever. If you do, I know some of you all are in communities where you've developed tight communities. Lead on. If you know your neighbors and you've done I know some of you guys are like that. Please, we need that. And as, as resident aliens here, they should go, well, that's kind of weird to invite us over to your house for, you know, like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever. Do you realize how rare that is? Some of y'all have told me you've lived here 20 and 30 years and no one's ever really invited you over, except maybe a neighborhood party. But revel in embracing people because it, maybe they don't even know who you are or why you're doing it or whatever, but it can be both offensive and attractive. And when they walk into your homes and see that they're actually functional, they'll say, how could this be? And you can say, amazing love, how can it be? Number four, verse 10. Fourth way to live as a fifth way, actually, to live as a resident alien. So just in a review, not living for the lust of the flesh, not living for in, in what the world says is right in that, <clears throat> being sober in our decision-making, fervent in our love, covering a multitude of sins, cheerfully opening up our homes. Peter says to these resident aliens here, in uh, verse 10 of First Peter 4, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You need to know what your gifts are, and you need to employ them to serve the world and serve the church and serve... And I don't mean the church is like living hope on Sunday mornings, so though that's a great thing to do. I'm saying serve people with what you're good at. And if you stink at it, don't, because somebody else is good at it. Do, do what you've been called to do, and don't not do it because it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to open your homes. It's a hassle. We opened up our home every Wednesday and Sunday for like seven years. It's not like God miraculously cleaned up and vacuumed the place when it was done. <laughs> right? Things got broken. The couch is really ratty now. You know what? 
if I'm living for a clean couch, I'm in the wrong business. You are in the Christianity is not about having a clean couch. Can you can you get that? It's about having a dirty couch and people in the kingdom of God who might otherwise not have been there. Do you understand that? Praise God. All right. I'm preaching today, brothers. All right. Let's go. We're going to finish up Hebrews 13. Last one. Hebrews 13. Open your Bibles if you got them. We're going to read along because this is also directly about not living in this world, being resident aliens and being like Abraham. Just going to read it straight through and make one comment and then we're done. Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. It's a different author. Peter did not write Hebrews, but look at the common themes that we've just discussed. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for therefore some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. See the themes? Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God judges sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Boy, that's our culture, right? And be content with what you have. For he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. In the place we're going, we don't need money. We need the presence of God. And we have it by the down payment of the Spirit. So we confidently can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I hope I'm found worthy of that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Listen to this, please. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Let me just pause and make a comment on that. So there's a camp within, and in this case, we're looking at a place where things are done in a certain way. In their context, it was by the law. That things were done properly and appropriately. For us, we contextualize this by looking at what the world considers normal. By what is understood to be acceptable. So contextualizing it like that, listen to this. I'm going to start at verse 11. Listen to that. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus lived like an alien, a resident alien on this earth. He didn't live with the rights. It was all very strange to him. And yet he understands you and he understands me better than anyone will. And he lives outside the camp. And he says, come to me outside. And is it easy? Isn't it hard to be different? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be looked at as the same as everybody else and accepted because everybody's doing it, that's fine. But you're going to live inside the camp and Jesus lives outside the camp.
I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if that like seems like a stark choice. Welcome to Christianity. It's a stark choice. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you called us to be citizens of a place we're going, not a place we've been or a place we are. And Lord, you challenge us to live in the values of where we're going. Lord, in a place where holiness reigns, where love is fervent. Lord, in a place where hospitality and openness is marked because you've opened wide your arms to sinners and nobody's bad enough, Lord, to be repelled by love once it's accepted. And so, Lord, let us live in that amazing love, immense and free, Lord, that we've accepted the unbelievable hospitality of a God who died on our behalf. Lord, let us worship you, the God who is forever with us, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close?